0: can open up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. No one likes a traitor. Betrayal is maybe one of the worst sins that you can commit. We all hate certain names. Benedict Arnold, Brutus, Judas Iscariot. And I don't often think of sin as an act of betrayal. And I certainly don't think of myself as a traitor when I commit sin. All those guys I just mentioned are traitors. They betrayed someone who had been good to them. They stabbed that individual in the back, sometimes literally, but certainly figuratively. But when you get to Genesis chapter 3, the first sin committed here cannot be rightly understood apart from seeing this as an act of betrayal. Adam and Eve became traitors. And what's tempting is to just sort of parachute into this passage. I mean, it's so well known. We think about sin, we know this is the first sin, and so it's, it's tempting to sort of jump in here and talk about sin and think about sin without considering the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, and without considering the background that has been set here for this act in Genesis chapter three. And so when you read Genesis three as it was intended to be read as a, a part of Genesis two, chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, one section coming together, when you read this in light of what's come before it, it becomes much more obvious that this is an act of cosmic betrayal. And what happens here sets the rest of humanity on the course of being rebellious traitors to God. The reason for that is because in Genesis 1 and 2, as We have belabored to try to show you in Genesis 1 and 2, we've seen God as a powerful creator who is good. Fundamentally, he is gracious and kind to his creatures. He provides everything that they need to enjoy the creation and to enjoy him as the creator, to be in fellowship with him. He enters very graciously into a covenant with them a relationship that he initiates with them in chapter 2. He gives them the gift of his presence. He will dwell with them on earth, walk with them in the garden. All of that is true, and it's with that understanding that you then turn to chapter 3, and you've got this background of this incredibly good, kind God. And then chapter 3 unfolds, and it's heartbreaking to watch what happens here. I mean, it makes you want to cringe when you see the turn in Adam and Eve. And it's, it's heartbreaking because of certainly what happens to them and the decision that they make here. But it's heartbreaking because this action has affected every single person, except one, throughout human history. Everything in some way goes back to here. All the heartache, all the pain, all the difficulty. And when you get to this passage, this is not a, a legend. This is not an allegory to teach us lessons that someone made up. It's sort we're of Aesop's Fables deal. This, these are true historical events. These are real people who existed, who betrayed God. And when they betrayed God and turned their backs on him and his goodness, it turned all the rest of us into rebellious backstabbers. I mean, we we come prepackaged that way now. We're born that way, dead in our trespasses and sins, hating God, going in the wrong direction. And so you and I cannot escape the impact of this text on our lives. It shapes us every single day. It is a monumental section of Scripture. But what we can do this morning, what I hope to do, is we can learn from what happens here. We can learn much from what happens here, certainly about our salvation, but in particular, we can learn about temptation and about sin and the nature of sin. And we can learn from that and be warned of the mistakes that Adam and Eve make here. So this morning, I want to show you three ingredients of the first sin that warn us not to be deceived. Three ingredients of the first sin. And the first one of these is to question God's goodness. So you read chapter 2. We saw the glory of marriage at the end of chapter 2 and you get to chapter 3 and the scene changes and now you've got a new character entering into the story. Now verse verse 1, now the serpent. Up until this point, God has been the main actor. I mean, he's the one that has been initiating all of his actions so far. Everything that he has done so far in this story has been to create that which is good and beautiful and true. And having created that, his mission is to bless his people and to do them good. His people who are made in his image and who can walk with him and relate to him and enjoy him. But now an unforeseen character enters into the story. We've not met this individual yet. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Clearly, this animal was created on day 6. I mean, Moses, the author here, makes it very clear. He was a beast of the field that the Lord God had made, created on day 6, just like all the other animals. But this animal has something unique about it that Moses wants us to understand. Look at how He describes the serpent here. He was more crafty. He was shrewd. So when you're reading the Old Testament, just hermeneutically, the author doesn't very often tell you, this is a good person, this is a bad person. They don't often do that and spell it out like that because most of the time, good stories don't do that. They have a much greater impact on us when we are expected to pick up the words and actions of the characters and evaluate them based on our moral sense that we, in the Bible, derive from other passages of Scripture. But what Moses is doing here is he's he's telling us to be on the lookout for this character. He uses this word, shrewd or crafty here, because what he's saying is don't take everything about this character and what he says at face value. You need to listen to this character's words carefully, and you need to evaluate what's going to come out of the mouth of this serpent. And so as we're evaluating this character, you have to bring the rest of the Bible to light on who exactly we're dealing with here. And I think you would know we're not dealing with a simple snake here. It is a serpent who was created on day six, but this snake has been empowered by an evil and malevolent person who is behind the snake. There are plenty of passages in Scripture that point to this, but in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he alludes to this passage and tells the Pharisees that they are of their father, the devil, who has been a liar from the beginning. And so, what we've got here, as we're evaluating what this serpent says to Eve, we should hear the voice of Satan behind this snake, empowering the snake and tempting Eve with what he's going to say. Look at his first words in, in verse one. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's amazing here? I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but in this passage, the snake never tells Eve to eat of the tree. He he never actually commands her to do that. Instead, what he does is he takes a much subtler approach and he tries to create skepticism in Eve. I mean, look at those words. Did God actually say? Trying to, to create doubt in Eve and how she understood what God had said to she and Adam. Look at the rest of the question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is, it's sort of like what God had said, but it's really a complete reworking of the command that God had given to Adam in chapter 2. It has an entirely different emphasis here. God's initial command for Adam and Eve was for them to enjoy any tree in the garden except one. It was a very generous and wide-ranging command. Enjoy all of the trees that I have given you. There's one tree that you need to avoid because avoiding this tree will bring you good. And eating of this tree will bring you much evil and pain. And so what the serpent is doing here by reframing this is he's trying to paint God as stingy and harsh. And it's interesting here, in Hebrew, the question actually begins with the word not. It begins with the negative. It's placed first here to emphasize that the serpent is trying to create a negative perception of God. The serpent wants Eve to doubt and distrust the goodness of God. That's the goal here. What else is interesting here is the way the serpent uses the name of God. Look here. Did God actually say? Now, throughout chapter 2, you can go back and look at this, but throughout chapter 2, when the creation of man and woman is recounted, the name for God that is used is the Lord God. It's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, with the divine name of God, God. And they're put together. The Lord God. But what happens here is the serpent takes away the relational covenant name of God and simply speaks of God as divine. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to create a sense of distance between Eve and God. He's trying to think, make Eve think that God is not personally caring for her and not in a close relationship with her. All of this he's trying to accomplish by simply posing a question and creating skepticism about who God is in Eve's mind. So how does Eve respond? Look at verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, Hindsight is 20, 20 right? Eve should have refused to engage the serpent's questions and attempts to get her to doubt the goodness of God. But as you read her response here, she seems to be toying with the idea that God really isn't as good as I thought he was. She sort of rehearses the command that God gave from chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, but notice what she omits. She omits the words surely in God's command and the word any in God's command. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She doesn't say surely, and she doesn't say any tree. It's like she's viewing God as somewhat restrictive here and not as generous as he was, and he is, and instead she adds this prohibition onto God's command here. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so she adds this prohibition here that God didn't say in chapter 2, don't touch the fruit. And it makes God appear somewhat petty and strict in her view of him. He didn't say it. And she, if you'll notice, speaks in the same way of God that the serpent did. She doesn't use the name Lord God, Yahweh God. Instead, look at verse 3. She says, but God. She's adopting the name that the serpent has used for God in this context here, not his covenant name. And so maybe the serpent sensed some wavering in the way Eve responded here, but in verse 4, the serpent comes full tilt at her. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So here, instead of just questioning, he directly contradicts what God has said to them. And he goes beyond directly contradicting what God has said, and he paints God as selfish. And he paints God as trying to withhold something good and desirable from the human couple. Look at verse 5. Here's why he's saying you won't surely die for. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, he's not denying that God gave the command, but he's attributing a motivation to why God gave this command here. He's impugning God's character and his motivations. He's basically saying, Listen, Eve, God is holding you back. He has something good that he doesn't want you to have, he is selfish. He is deceptive. He is keeping you from something that you really want that will really be enjoyable to you. So let's pause for a moment here in the sense of not working through the text anymore. And let's consider Satan's overall tactics here, because I think this is incredibly instructive for me as I think about temptation and sin in my own life. His overall goal, the serpent's overall goal here is to get Eve to question God's goodness. I mean, that's our first point this morning. But if you read Genesis 1 and 2, the the narrative so far has presented God as incredibly benevolent and incredibly good and gracious. And the serpent is calling all of that into question here. And this is so helpful for us in our fight against temptation because I think we often... Think of temptation like this. This is how we view temptation. You'll be at work, and a frustrating situation will come up with that annoying coworker, and you are tempted to use harsh language in anger against that person. Maybe you're on your computer late at night, and you are tempted in that moment to look at something inappropriate that you shouldn't look at. And so what we do when we think about temptation is we tend to think in terms of, I'm here in a moment, and all of a sudden the temptation arises, and it pops up, and in this moment of temptation, I have got to fight. And I need to recount Bible verses, and I need to use those Bible verses to fight off sin. And that's what I need to do here. And if I do that effectively enough, I will overcome temptation, and I won't sin. If I don't do that effectively enough then I'll give in to temptation and I will sin. And that's how we tend to think, or that's how I often tend to think about temptation. It's a moment of time where I'm confronted with an issue and I have to decide in that moment or work my will to the point where I won't give in to that temptation. But in reality, this is all preparing for the moment of temptation here. What's happening in verses one through five is setting the stage. And in your life and in my life, preparing for temptation, being groomed for temptation happens hours and even years before you actually walk into that situation. The real battleground is occurring all the time in the understanding of God that you have built into your life through the scriptures. How do you think of God? What is he like? I mean, that's the root of what the serpent goes after here. His whole mission is, is to get Eve to doubt God's goodness and to question God's generosity. Is God fundamentally good? And that is the heart of the question. And for you and I, does that reality that God is good, is that not, is that something we just sort of think about from time to time and and acknowledge in our brains? Or is that a reality that sinks down deep into your bones and into who you are and into how you move and relate to those around you and move in the world? And what had happened here is Eve's view of God had shifted under her feet. She may not have even realized it was happening, but it moved her from a very strong position and understanding God's goodness and loving him for his goodness and never wanting to do anything that would violate that goodness or demean that goodness. And she had moved from that ground to this weakened position where she is doubting his goodness and wondering, why did he do this? Maybe he is withholding something that would be really fun from me, really helpful to my life. And she allowed that thought to take root in her and it was destructive in its force. And once her view of God had shifted, just like for you and I, when our view of God shifts and we begin to doubt his goodness, then we are ripe for the moment of temptation. All of that was already in process for her to give in to temptation. And that brings us to our second ingredient here. She gives in to desire. So she questions God's goodness. And the second ingredient in temptation is that she gives in to desire. Now, what's amazing about this passage is how helpful the description of temptation and this process is here. Let me read verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. We'll finish the rest of the verse in a few minutes here. But notice the steps here. First of all, she saw. She looked with her eyes. She saw that the fruit was good and a delight to the eyes. What has happened here is she's using, Moses uses the same word for good that he has used in chapter 1 to describe everything that God pronounced good. God made everything good and he called it good. And so what Eve is doing here, she's making a judgment call on what is good. And she has put herself in the decision-making position. She is the moral authority. She is calling something good that God has forbidden. So she saw. The second part of this, look at verse 6, is she desired. Desire welled up within her. And she saw the fruit and she wanted the fruit because she desired to be made wise as the promise was held out by the serpent. Then she reached out her hand and she took it. She saw, she desired, and then she acted on that desire and she took it. This is the same pattern that's used, if you remember this story in the book of Joshua, of Achan, Achan recounts what happened here. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted, same word, desired them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. He saw, he desired, and he took. He acted on his desires here. I think you can also hear in this passage an echo in 1 John 2.16 to describe worldliness. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, she looked with her eyes, she wanted, and the pride of life, she wanted to be wise. All of that is echoed here from Genesis chapter 3, is not from the Father, but is from the world, and so I think what happens for us is we, temptation comes so readily and so naturally to us. It's a part of living in this fallen world that sometimes we overlook the details of how this works. And it's really helpful to be able to identify the process that's taking place in your heart and in my heart when in that moment of temptation. Certainly the foundation has been set by our view of God, but then you get to the actual moment of temptation and there's a process taking place. We doubt the goodness of God, and then we see something forbidden. We desire it, and then we act on that desire. And so all of this tells us that the very center of temptation is desire. It's about what you want. Listen, people people do not sin because they have rationally evaluated the situation and made a good choice in that moment. You do not do that. I do not do that. I don't lash out in anger because I realize this will actually produce the best outcome in my life. I have coolly evaluated the situation. And no, this is the good thing to do in this moment. We always sin because we want something. And our sin happens when our desires are aimed at the wrong thing. You can't help but desire You can't help but want. That's what makes you get up in the morning. That's what drives you and I to action. That's why we do everything we do, because of our desires. It's just a matter of where those desires are aimed. And in temptation, they're aimed at the wrong thing. James chapter 1 makes this clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed By his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, Eve here acts on her desire, and it gives birth to sin. Then, notice what she does at the end of verse 6 she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. Everything has been flipped on its head here. So God creates the man first and gives him the command in chapter 2, verse 16, to eat of any tree in the garden save one. He is the covenant head. The command is singular there. It's given to him as the representative of all humankind. He's responsible for that command. And what he was supposed to do is he was supposed to lead and protect his wife. And together, they were to take dominion over the earth by multiplying and having children and ruling over the animals and the elements of creation. But what's happened here is it's all reverse. Here, the serpent has exercised dominion over the woman who is now leading her husband. And everything's backwards in the story. And so I always love to think about in this moment, what what should have happened? Adam's the covenant head. He's the one that's ultimately responsible. So when Eve turns to him with that fruit and he's standing there, what should Adam have done? What does covenant faithfulness look like here One author wrote about this, and I cannot improve upon his description, and so I'm going to read it to you. He would, he should, have looked at Eve, seen her curse, seen her enemy, and gone after that serpent with pure and righteous wrath. He would have then turned to face the pure and righteous wrath of God that Adam just imaged by going after the serpent, and he would have said something quite simple, something that would be said by another thousands of years later, take me instead. But that isn't what Adam does in this moment, is it? Adam, as the covenant head of the human race, decided to follow his bride into sin. And Paul makes it very clear in 1 Timothy that Eve was deceived in this moment, but Adam sins out of outright rebellion and plunges the whole human race into rebellion and sin. And this is precisely why we need a second Adam. Because Adam failed in this moment. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And what we need is we need someone to chase down the serpent and crush his head. And we need someone to destroy the works of the devil. And we need someone to step in between God's righteous indignation over our sin and say, take me instead. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did thousands of years later. He is the second Adam. And he wins his bride by taking her place on her behalf. But that's not what Adam does here. He buys into the lies of the serpent and the result is massive unintended, unintended by Adam and Eve consequences. And that's our third ingredient here. They question God's goodness. They give in to desire. And then, man, they suffer unintended to them, unintended consequences. So what's amazing about this passage is the promises and the hopes of verses 5 and 6. So think about it like this. Look at verse 5. What does the serpent promise to Eve? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Those are incredible promises that he makes to Eve. And then what is Eve hoping for? What is she she wanting? Look at verse 6. She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she's so excited and happy about what she potentially has found and realized here that she gives it to her husband, and they participate in this together. They trusted the promises of the serpent, and they thought that by acting like this, they would receive more joy and more happiness than they could have imagined. And the eating of the fruit at the end of verse 6 is really the the linchpin of the whole passage, really of this whole section. I mean, these words that she took the fruit, gave it to her husband, and he ate. That's the center of the whole thing. And when that happens, when that action takes place, everything changes, beginning in verse 7. And so all the hopes and promises of verses 5 and 6 turn into incredible unintended consequences in the rest of this chapter. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The serpent had promised that their eyes would be opened, hadn't he? And it happens, and they were, but not in the way that they had expected. They were rewarded with an acute awareness of their nakedness, and it was so overwhelming and so uncomfortable that they desperately tried to cover themselves with anything they could find. So rather than the glorious freedom and harmony that they had experienced at the end of chapter 2, now they feel guilt and embarrassment and shame. But the choice to eat this fruit didn't only impact their relationship with one another. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, The serpent had promised them that they would be like God. They would be on the same level as God. Now, they only want to hide from his presence. They don't want to be near him. Now they're isolated and they're afraid and they're hiding from someone who had loved them so deeply and been so good to them. And they can't get away from him fast enough. Verse 8 here, you see, he's walking in the garden in the cool or the wind of the day. Probably the evening part of the day, God would come and commune with them in the garden. And interestingly enough, it's the same word and same description of walking in the garden that is used later on to talk about God walking in the tabernacle. And so that, I think, again, points to the reality that the garden was a temple where God would come and commune with mankind be in a relationship with them. But now, rather than experiencing the presence and the blessing of God being near them, now all of that communion has been shattered in a deep and significant way. And this whole thing obviously is tragic, but if you step back and you look at the promises and the hopes of verses five and six and the expectations, and then you look at the reality of what happened in verses seven and eight, It's a little like being promised that you're going to have your honeymoon in the presidential suite in the nicest Hilton in New York City and you show up and you end up chained in a dungeon instead. Serpent promised and he did not and could not follow through. But this is exactly what sin does to us. Every time. This is how sin operates. I mean, it's been like this from the beginning. Satan is a liar from the beginning. We are promised the good life through sin. We're promised happiness. We're promised satisfaction. We're promised joy. If we will just operate on our own moral standing and authority instead of God's. If you and I will just figure out what we think is right and the best way to live, then Satan says... You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. What could be better than making your own choices about how to run your life? But sin can never deliver on its promises. It is always a lie. Always a lie. And at the root of temptation, at every temptation to sin, is, in this passage and in every other passage, it's the temptation to be like God. And it's to place yourself on the throne of the universe. And to make a little God of yourself and to decide right from wrong for yourself and to think God doesn't really know what's best for me. He's not really good. I'll make the decision. I'll decide. I'm capable. I can do it. At the root of this passage is skeptically viewing God's goodness and love for us. And it's trusting in self rather than in God. And it's wanting to live my life on my own terms apart from him and apart from his word and apart from his good ordering of the universe. And so that's exactly why reconciliation with God to be the communion is shattered here, but to be brought back into relationship with God requires two things. We talked about the first one earlier. Reconciliation with God gloriously requires a second Adam to say, take me instead. And we have that. And he has come to atone for our sins and to deliver us from evil, from the evil one. But the second thing that is required is we need the grace of God to intervene in our spiritually dark, self-centered hearts. And we need the grace of God to turn the light of faith on. The heart of the gospel is faith in the work of Jesus Christ rather than faith in self, in my own ability, in my own goodness, in my own works, in my own view of the world. It's turning from self to God and trusting in him and his word. Faith is a humble submission to what God says about himself and about his son, Jesus Christ. It's the exact opposite posture of Adam and Eve here. This is anything but faith. This is trust in self. Faith positions us rightly before God because we're humbly dependent on him. And we're trusting that when he says he's good and when he says he wants what's best for us and when he says I'm ordering the universe to do you good in every situation, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it, we trust him and we believe him. And so in response to this, seeing the failure of the first Adam here, I would encourage you today, turn to God in faith in the substitutionary atonement of the second Adam and trust him and him alone for reconciliation with God. But that's not only something you do at the beginning of your Christian life. Every single day, Every single moment, every single hour, we need to turn from trust in self, from our own moral ordering of the universe, and look to God and his goodness and graciousness, and look to his son, Jesus Christ, and trust in him for our continued growth and holiness. And as we face the lies of temptation, fight those with the truth of who God is and with what he's done in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so thankful for our second Adam. No doubt we would be in the same situation as Adam and Eve if we were in the garden. We're so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ came and said, take me instead. Please build our faith, even this morning, build our faith in you, build our faith in Christ, build our faith in your goodness this morning and in your character. Thank you for what you've done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.